Open up your Bibles to Colossians chapter 4. Sometimes it's hard to understand what the impact of being here on a Sunday morning is. And I just want to tell you, Nathan Abir, you don't understand the impact of seeing you here on this morning. It's really good to see you. This passage has a lot to do with communication, how to do it well. But sometimes it helps to see it done unwell, less than well, maybe improperly, to understand, to contrast it against, right? So there's you an example of it done unwell. Can you imagine someone, the guy that drives this car says, want to go to dinner? We can take my car. Now, there's nothing wrong about the message at all. I would just say it's in a manner that I wouldn't communicate it. In this passage today, Paul talks to us about how to communicate that message in a better manner. Let's read our passage together. We're going to be in in Colossians 4, verses 2 through 6, all right? Devote yourselves in prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time. For us as well, that God may open up to us a door for the word, so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ, for which I have also been imprisoned. Verse 4. In order that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak, conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Verse 6. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned as it were, seasoned as it were, with salt, so that you may know how you should respond to each person. Well, so, (coughs) excuse me, he begins a section about prayer, and you'll see as he moves through the verse 3, he begins to speak about his prayer, and eventually he turns the corner to talk about how we relate to those around us who are not yet believers. And so he says here, devote yourselves to prayer. The amplified version, the amplified translation of the Bible states it like this. Be earnest and unwearied and steadfast in your prayer life, being both alert and intent in your praying with thanksgiving. It's really, really, as you study Colossians, you see how it so much parallels the letter to the Ephesians as well. Chapter 6 of Ephesians very much parallels this chapter. And so in chapter 6 of Ephesians, you don't have to turn there, I'm just going to read it to you. Beginning in verse 18, he says, With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert. You know, there's that same word. With all perseverance and petition for all the saints. And pray on my behalf, that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth, to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming it, I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. You see, Ephesians 6 just parallels Colossians 4 so, so closely. And and it's a fairly simple statement, and it's fairly straightforward that we learn three things about our prayer life, three things. So number one, we're supposed to pray. You know, that's not a surprise. That's not a shock. He says, you're supposed to be praying. He says, so pray earnestly. He tells us how to pray. He says, devote yourself to prayer. Pray earnestly and be diligent about it. And then he says, don't forget to thank God 
for the things he's doing. So three things there we want to learn is you're supposed to pray. We know that. We just need to be diligent about it, be, be devoted to it. Number two, you're supposed to be diligent about I mean, I already repeated that. Be diligent about it. And number three, don't forget to thank God for all that he is doing. It, the, and the Thanksgiving prayer service we did here, that time of praise and all, we talked about Luke uh, 17 and the, the lepers who were healed and how the nine left without thanking God, but the one returned to thank God? It is just so much in our nature to receive without saying thank you. What is the thing we are always after our children about? Did you say thank you? Did you say thank you to her? Go back over there and say thank you to her. (laughs) Saying thank you, being grateful for things is just not in our nature typically. And so often he is saying, with thanksgiving. He does not say we should not go with our needs. He does not say we should not go to him and ask him to meet our needs. But he's saying, when you do it, thank him for meeting those needs. It's just such a simple reminder, but it's one that we know we need all the time. So, I think that when we try and evaluate how well we are doing this passage, I don't know that there are any great metrics for that. You know, it's like, it is impossible to spend all day long on your knees in prayer, but yet I believe that it is possible to be diligent in prayer throughout the day. And so, at what point have you prayed enough? At what point... Do you pray for everyone? At what point? Just how do you measure that? I think that praying for others and with others is in, in some form the very hardest ministry there is. It's hard to be diligent to it. It's hard to be faithful to it because so often answers come in ways that we can't measure them. Or often answers come in ways that we can't see them. And, and you find yourself so often, for me, I, I tend to hear myself say something like, well, if there's nothing else I can do for you, I can pray for you. You hear what that's saying? And I've said it lots of times. Well, at least I can pray for you. You see where what it does is it's saying like, it, it's in a sense, it's that whole thing again of, us writing ourselves into the script. It's that whole thing again of us wanting to be in the photograph. It's that thing of like, you have a need. I want to fix it. I want to meet it. I want to do something. And we feel like the best way to meet that need is to put ourselves in the equation. And yet the very best thing, if we really understood who God was, if we really understood his power, if we really understood that he's working out purposes and plans that we have no concept of, the very best thing we could be doing for someone is praying for them. It's praying for them. And yet I so often say, well, at least I, I can, the least I can do is pray for you. No, the best thing I can do is stay out of your way and don't come over your house and catch your disease. I'm going to stay at home. I'm going to pray for you. Honest. That's the very best thing I could do for you. How can I pray for you specifically? 
how can I pray for you specifically? That's just, and, and that thing about prayer, you know, it, it is that praying is all about asking God how he's going to meet a need, how he's going to fix a situation, how he's going to bring purpose out of a problem. And, and God's solutions are eternal. And my solutions are often wrong, and they're never eternal when it's what I'm doing. And so being able to come along somebody and pray for them is a way that I come and I, I seek an eternal solution. I seek um, the very best fix for their situation. And so my participation, very often, it should be the only thing is just to be praying for them. So Paul understood this because look at verse 3. He has a prayer request. He says, please be diligent in prayer and please have an attitude of thanksgiving. And then he says, number three, and then verse three, he has this prayer request and pray at the same time for us. He's speaking of himself and those who are in Rome and who are maybe are in prison or those who are ministering to him. And he says, pray for us that God would open up a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mysteries of Christ for which I am also imprisoned in order that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. Pray that God will open a door, he says. Who? It's God. Who opens the door? God does. That's not his only prayer request. He says, and pray that when that door is open, that I will speak clearly. So in this case, Paul is in the picture. He's already in the picture frame. He's in the equation. But he knows that he's only effective as the Lord does the work. If the Lord opens that door and gives him the words, he knows that's the best scenario. I would venture to say that the gentleman or the person who had their car (coughs) gospeled out, you know, pimped out with the gospel. Can I say that in church? Sorry, maybe not. I'm not sure. Anyway, who had that stuff on his car, that person was probably trying to be as effective as they could be. Matter of fact, even going forward in our passage, don't get ahead of me, but just let me reference it and say, I bet you this person was trying to to make the most of every opportunity. I would even bet, I'm really a firm believer that that would not be something I would do. I'm even hesitant about little bumper stickers, you know, know, uh, just because the road is a a very unsanctified area. And so... um, I would believe, though, and this is crazy. This is really, really crazy because what I'm going to speak about today in just a few moments is clarity of the gospel, and yet I really believe that that car has probably been used for the gospel because because God makes good things that are not always good. God uses our very best efforts at times, even when they're not the best effort. I do believe it's amazing that some of us ever got saved because I've heard myself share the gospel and I thought, it's no wonder they didn't get saved. I was totally a mess. Or I'll share the gospel and they would trust Christ and I'll go, how did that happen? Even I wasn't sure what I said. Because God is bigger than all that and he steps into it. Now then, but listen to what Paul says in the passage. Even Paul says In verse 4, in order to make it clear. In order to make it clear. 
So four things about the passage. Four more things we can learn. First of all, it's God who opens doors. I'm sure that the gentleman in that car was seeking to open a door. I believe that he was trying to put his foot through the door as opposed to letting God open it. I'm not sure. But God opens the doors. When he opens that door, we must open our mouth and allow him to speak through us. It might cost us to speak. It might cost us to speak. Paul says it in this passage. He says, for which I am in chains. There are times and places when you are going to do what God is asking you to do. There are times and places when the door will be open and you open your mouth and God speaks through you and it's going to cost you. In our environment today, it might cost you your reputation. It might cost you your job. It might cost you friends. It might cost you in ways that you never imagined. But he says it will cost you at times. So it might cost you to speak up. And then finally, the fourth thing is seek to be clear about the gospel. Seek to be clear about the gospel. You know, it's interesting that Paul, 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 the one who wrote Romans, Paul, the one who really seems to understand the gospel, Paul, that one, that Paul, says more than once, now we've read it twice today, that I may be clear. Isn't it interesting that Paul is concerned about clarity of the gospel? Paul is. Now, if Paul is interested in clarity of the gospel, I should be as well. Shouldn't all of us be as well? Clarity of the gospel is no small thing. If you were trying to tell someone how to get Cape May, and you were to tell them, well, first thing, get on the turnpike and go west. When you get to Pittsburgh, make a right. They might eventually get there but it's not the best route. Or else they might end up in San Francisco. Nice place, wrong destination. In talking about the gospel and trying to be clear about it, it is really important for us to know the direction, to know the route. Someone might figure it out, and God does intervene, but if Paul is saying that I want to be clear, I want to be clear too. I want us as a church to be clear too. As elders and as a church, we make it a big deal to be clear about the gospel. What does it take to be saved? I recently was um, doing a book on tape. I was doing a book called Follow Me. And I got through the, and there was chapter after chapter. It was written by the president of the Southern Baptist Conference International Board of Missions. And you're thinking he should be like a few notches below Paul maybe, right? And I got to say, like every single chapter I got done and went, what do I do to be saved? Do, I didn't understand that. Let's, I need to do that again, maybe. And, and that's why here at Crossing, we try and be clear about it. 
And that's why here at Crossing, I've heard it before people say to me like, geez, man, like if you do that, if you step over that line one more time, I'm going to step out that back door. You know, we've heard the gospel before. We get that. Can we move on to something that's really important now, to something that's deeper? I've been told that this year. Well, I bet you this is the thing, is that I've heard myself try and share the gospel. I've heard some of us try and share the gospel. I don't think we have it yet. And if Paul is praying for clarity, and if Paul is praying for boldness, then we should as well. We should as well. I'm just going to tell you, I warn you, if, you've been, if you feel like you've heard the line one too many times, I'm going to do this next week. I'm going to do the line, all right? And then I'm going to do it again at Christmas Eve, all right? So I'm just going to warn you. And if you want to know where I'm going to do it in the service so that you can sit on the back row and take a nap or step out of the room, you know, I'll let you know. But we're going to do the line again in the next two weeks because we're going to have people with us who need to know Jesus and they need to know how to know him clearly. And I'll do my very best. And now, I bet you I'm going to have some of you go, well, that was a hot mess, wasn't it? (laughs) Consider yourselves, verse 5. Consider yourselves. Consider with wisdom toward outsiders. Consider yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. You You know, Paul's already talked to us about how to live, in verses 3 through 5, chapter 3, verses 5 and forward, over there, if you just want to look across the page there, he says, therefore consider the members of your earthly body, and he says, this is how you're not supposed to live. Immortality, impurity, passion, evil desire, greed. He says, put away anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech. Do not lie to each other. That's all the way he, you shouldn't live. And then he says that you should live in renewal of mind. That you should not have distinction among people. And he says, and that you should be holy and beloved, putting on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bearing with each other, forgiving each other. Don't have complaints against each other. Beyond all things, put on love. And let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. Let the, the word of Christ dwell in your, in your life. And whatever you do, verse 17, whatever you do, and do all in the name of Christ. Giving thanks. There's thanks one more time. Giving thanks through him to God the Father. So he's already told us how to live and how not to live. And now here we are in, in this passage, and he says, conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders. Well, Conduct yourself with wisdom. Hmm. So there's a couple of things. That, you know, I, one of the professors at, at seminary said this. He said, often the only version of the Bible the world will ever read is that of the believer's life. And if that is true, in light of the weakness of the church's testimony today, surely the world could use a revised version. So he's saying, if the only Bible they read is your life, we need a different version. If the only Bible they read is my life, uh, we should not amplify that one. The Amudi said, every Bible should be bound in shoe leather. 
In other words, what he's saying here is, is you, whatever that word says, whatever that Bible says, it should be bound, it should be demonstrated in the way you live your life. It should be demonstrated in the way you live your life. Now, some of you are saying, see, Tim, I've told you. I've told you. I, it's more effective to live it out. Verse 5 says live it out. Verse 6 says speak it out clearly. It is a both and. It is a both and. But I admit that our behavior gets more attention than our speech because have mercy. You can listen to a politician and know there's not a word of what they're saying that'll ever happen. Words are cheap. Words are cheap. They have no meaning at all. Most of the time. But what gets our attention is our actions and our behavior. What gets our attention. This week, Stephon Curry made the headlines. Stephon Curry made the headlines that catch this, not because he scored, not because of his skill on the court, not because of his humility of heart, but, but it was because of his humility of heart. He is the MVP. That means the most valuable player. That means he's really important in the NBA. That means they would consider him the best that year. He's the leader of the NBA champion Golden State Warriors. He just recorded, his team was just recorded the longest winning streak in the NBA. But when he steps on the court, he is the fifth lowest payer player on that court. The MVP of the NBA, you want some more initials? I'll try and find some. Is when he steps on the court with all these, this other, his team, four other guys make more money than he does. Now, if you track athletics, Sports in the United States, you know that doesn't fly. And so the headline this week was, How Steph Curry Makes His Daily Peace with a Contract Unfit for the MVP. It wasn't because he was demanding to be traded. It wasn't because he said he was going to leave. It wasn't because he said there were other players who were worse than he was. In this particular article, he goes on and he just says, I make peace with it. I control my thoughts. That's what he says. He doesn't ever mention Christ in here, in this article one time. But he's mentioned Christ a lot of other times. A lot. And this is the place where he doesn't speak about Jesus, but he acts like Jesus, and they coalesce perfectly. They blend in perfectly. There's no distinction between the two. There's no difference. There's no place where someone can go, ah, yeah, but... In this instance, his words and his testimony and his belief and his faith in Christ perfectly align with his actions. With his actions. This week also, I uh, came across another instance. Actually, it was, it was actually this instance is where someone noted it. This is... Greg Gutfield, if you're a Fox person, you might know him. I didn't really know him, but someone told me about him this week. He's on the fives, and I don't know much about the fives either. But this is what I do know about Greg and reading his bio. He's not a Christian. 
He, and he's not an atheist, although many people claim he's an atheist. He just says, I'm not religious. I am non-religious. I don't believe in it. And so he takes a counter look to many things. This summer, after the Charleston shootings, this is what he had to say. On Nationwide TV, after listening to the family members in court, we played that segment here in church. After listening to the family members, forgive the shooter. Forgive the shooter. Gutfield had this to say. He said, that video was so heart-wrenching. And then Greg paused for a second before speaking and asked rhetorically, is this the most powerful emotional testimony ever seen? He said, this may be the most expression of goodness ever. And then paraphrasing, he wondered, is it their Christian religion and deep faith that make these people so good? Or is there goodness that led them to be so faithful Christians? You see right there, he doesn't understand it. He doesn't understand it. He thinks that if you're good, you become a Christian. That's one thing he's wondering about. So if you're really good, do you become a Christian? Or becoming a Christian make you this good? He doesn't understand it. And this is exactly what these kind of instances do. They make people pause, and he is out loud saying, how does this work? How does this work? Do all the good people just become like this, and this is what happens if you're good? Because I'm not that good. Or does this... Christian church stuff make you that way? He's asking the question, and this, at this moment, it doesn't appear that he has the answer. But this is the thing. He is paying attention. He's watching their words. He's watching their actions. And he doesn't know what to do with them. He doesn't know what to do with them. Did he come to Christ? We don't know but he's asking questions because their conduct made huge waves, made huge impact. And this is what happens when we go through difficult seasons. God can take your illness. God can take your unemployment. God can take whatever situation you're in and he can make it for good. Especially if our actions and our attitudes reflect him. I've been in a lot of hospital rooms. I've been in a lot of hospital rooms. And I was so, so moved two or three weeks ago when I was at St. Mary's in the emergency room with Mr. Sechrist. And it was just myself and Jerry's brother Dave in the room. And they were asking for decisions to be made now. We need to move. If you don't do this in, this in the context of a stroke, if you don't act a certain amount of time, the situation gets worked. What do you want to do? So, Jerry's, Dave is there alone, and he was really trying to figure out what to do. He was calling Jerry, asking to talk to mom, Mrs. Seacrest. And we stepped in, and we just prayed and prayed, and I prayed over Mr. Seacrest. And then I stepped away as the doctors came in, and they talked. And I just tell you that there is nothing like immovable faith. 
when it is paired against what appears to be an immovable circumstance. That stroke was something that they weren't sure that they could fix, and it's obviously they didn't fix it. But the thing that didn't change in that room, the thing that didn't budge in that room, was that man's faith. And believing that God, in that moment, was his only resource to reach out to. What we do and who we reach for and what we put our faith and our hope into in those moments speaks volumes. I was talking to Jerry when I was in there visiting with her dad one day, and I just said, I bet you nurses, because Jerry's a nurse, I said, I bet you nurses see a lot of stuff in these rooms. If you're a nurse, you might give an amen to that. Um, so, and I've often said this with someone tell me one time that very often what's happening in a hospital room has more impact on those who are coming and going out of that room all day long, that that is the mission field in a hospital room. As those who are coming and going and watching us deal with our circumstances. I, I will say I apologize if you're one of those people in that situation right now. It's easy for me to say that. And I hope that God bears you if you're in that situation right now. But there is literally a power within us that Paul speaks about in, in 1 Corinthians 4, where he, uh, uh, 2 Corinthians 4, he's, verse 7, where he says, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. You have this treasure inside of yourself in that hospital room or in that waiting room or wherever your life may be right now where there's a crisis. You have this, this treasure inside of you and, and what Stefan did and, and what that family did in Charleston and what some of you have done and I've seen you do it, you know, whether they're Beers or the Shipleys or whoever you may be, what you guys have done is you've demonstrated that I am broken, I am sick, I don't know about my certainty of my life right now, but there's a surpassing power that belongs to God inside of me and it's not about me, but it's about Him. It's just about Him. And people see that. But this power is not limited to tragedy or hardship. Last week we talked about um, chapter 3, verses 18 through chapter 4, verse 1. And in that passage there, it speaks about wives, this is how you behave. Husbands, this is how you behave. Children, this is how you behave. Fathers, this is how you behave to your sons and daughters. Employees, this is how you should behave at work. This is, you work for me. You don't work for the boss. And bosses, you have a boss too. Remember that as you interact with your employees. He just said, you know, there, it's very easy to say that God is noticeable in ordeal and trial. Where he is also noticed is in our homes, in our cubicles, in our workplaces. Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders. And that wisdom, if you want to know what that is, well, that wisdom is compacted in the gospel itself, but it's compacted in verses 18 through 4.1. It's compacted in so many places where Paul or some of the other te- the writers are writing about. That wisdom is compacted in Scripture where it says, this is how we should behave. And when we behave this way, it reeks of wisdom. 
When we have families that don't work well all the time, and yet we still respond in a way that says, God will work this out. I, my faith is not shaken. That points to him. When we just have families that are normal, and we make him the center of our life, that points back to him. When we deal with our little things that every single family deals with, every single family is not touched by cancer. It's hard to believe that, but they're not. Every single family doesn't have some kind of tragedy in it, but every single family has days when the car breaks down. And how we respond to that speaks volumes about him. Who we are in our daily life, in these most important relationships, says a great deal about who God is in our lives. And that power that is inside of us. Let your speech always be with grace and seasoned, as it were, with salt, so they'll know you should so that so you may know, I'm sorry, so that you may know how you should respond to each person. When we are behaving, when we are conducting ourselves in the way he's talking about, when these things, this new life we're putting into us, that's what begins to come out. And that speech comes out gracefully, seasoned in such a way that we earn a hearing. Man, church, if that's the way, you know, if that's the way that we, if we're interested in changing our world, if we're interested in Christ being real in our lives, this is how it happens. We're not interested in in winning the cultural debate like you see worked out on the internet. I don't even participate in those things. I read them. They're insightful. They're discouraging. They're funny. But I don't even participate in them. Because where it happens is in my relationship and what people hear me say and what they see me do. Same thing is true for you. Same thing is true for you. Let's pray. All right?